All right. <clears throat> well, I wanted today to do a little bit of a follow-up to the conference that we had on Friday and Saturday, just some concluding thoughts uh, on, on those issues, and then next week we'll move on uh, back to the confession uh, where we're at there. So uh, anyway, so let's open up with a word of prayer, and then we'll, uh, I want to look at a couple other passages uh, that we didn't have time. There's also, the notes from that uh, I will be able to get and make available because there were, uh, that was probably 25% or 30% of the verses that are in the notes that were read during the conference. Just because of a matter of time, uh, we're not able to go over everything. Or we could have been, well, we could have been here till midnight. I would have been all right with that. <clears throat> but uh, anyway, so we'll make those available for you if you want them. And then you can look up those scriptures and, and have the full uh, full menu there. So let's pray and then we'll begin. Father, we thank you for, Lord, your many blessings to us and Lord, to be uh, associated with your people, Lord, to be uh, gathered here together, Lord, calling upon our great God and Father. And Lord, we do pray that you would, Lord, continue to help us as a church, Lord, to persevere and to endure through all things. Lord, we know that one of the tribulations that we must overcome are false teachers and false brothers who will come in among us, and Lord, they will cause divisions and fra factions and conflicts, Lord, that will arise. And when these things happen, it is a test for us, Lord, so that we might prove uh, whether or not we are true and right, and if we have righteous judgment and know how to respond to these things. So, Father, we pray that as we encounter and endure these things over the course of the years, Lord, that you would give us steadfastness. Lord, help us to be immovable. Lord, may we love you more than any other person. Lord, even if it is one of our family members, Lord, who causes a division, Lord, we pray that we would always side on the side of truth and righteousness. And Lord, do those things that are pleasing in your sight. So Lord, help us in these things to be able to overcome and Lord, to enter into the kingdom of God. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, well, just as we were, were saying there, the, one of the reasons why we wanted to do this conference, though it's been claimed by some that we were doing it just to do damage control and to justify ourselves uh, in light of other people, this is certainly not the case at all. Uh, but being a pastor for the last several years, uh, I've been here for over 10 years now at, uh, at, this, at this church, uh, and praise the Lord for that, so... After the first couple of months, I thought I would be here for less than a year. Uh, so we've been able to endure, and God has been faithful to us and has brought many of you here with us as well. And so we're very grateful uh, for what God has done in the last 10 years. But one of the things that became apparent to me uh, early on, I remember actually early on uh, when we were meeting, uh, after I became the pastor in 2012, on Wednesday nights, we would read a psalm, and then after we read the psalm, we would have a time of, of prayer. Uh, I would do a short exposition on a psalm, and I remember reading, especially the early psalms, uh, maybe through the first 50 or 60, there is such a constant theme of persecution that it's nearly every psalm, there is some tormentor, some persecutor, an enemy who is afflicting the psalmist, the prophet, the righteous man, typically David, and they are tormenting them, and he's crying out to God for God to help him, to save him, to deliver him from this person. And I remember thinking at that time, you know, this experience, what is this about? 
because that had not been the case in much of my Christian life. And then quickly thereafter, things began to uh, unwind at the church, and then it became uh, something that I knew not only by the scriptures, but my own experience was uh, justifying these, these things. That This same thing was happening to me, and from that point on, our first controversy at this church began in April or May of 2013. Uh, this was before uh, we knew, or I knew uh, Pastor Ish, but it was before they were at the church and before we had really become close friends. We were still getting to know each other at that time. Uh, and, and it had nothing to do with him. It had everything to do with me. And really it had everything to do with the teaching of the Bible. Uh, because there were certain things that we were teaching that people did not like. Uh, and the main one was preaching against easy believism, uh, especially when we were preaching through the book of James. When we taught through the book of James, that's when things started going awry. Uh, because James is constantly talking about faith without works is dead. It's worthless. It's no good. He's saying these things over and over again. And when you begin to preach that, and you're in a typical church that has been built upon revivalism and false conversions, and 95% of the members don't even come on a Sunday, and that's all of the people's children and grandchildren, and you're preaching against those things, well, you're preaching against their kids. And that's when the mutiny began to happen. And, and from that point on, it's been one controversy after another, right? We'll have uh, moments of quiet and peace, but we know that in due time, there are going to be things that happen. And as you read the scriptures, and this is one of the reasons why we wanted to do this conference, was because it's very important for us as a church to know that these things are necessary, that they are necessary. Now, of course, we never seek conflict out. We don't pick fights. We don't want to do those things. What we've been doing Currently is what we've been doing from the very beginning, which is we just want to teach the Bible. We want to find like-minded people. We want to encourage each other in the faith and all get along, right? That's what we want. That's what we desire. But if you're teaching the Bible, and if there is sin, and if a person does not want to repent of that sin, eventually you're going to strike a nerve. And when that nerve is struck, that person either has to repent or they have to cause a controversy, because they cannot bear and endure to sit under the authoritative teaching of the Bible. So whenever the scriptures come into conflict with the sin, whatever sin we are cherishing, then at that point we either, we, we either have to repent, flee, or fight. And that's typically what happens. And usually when people flee, they flee by, and they throw a hand grenade in the building before they leave, and then we're left to pick up all the pieces. Well, when that happens, it affects you as well. And you have to know what to do. And if you don't do what is right, then it's sin. It's sin on me, it's sin on you. We have to judge what is good and right in the sight of God, and we have to be able to judge these situations and what is taking place and do it with righteous judgment. We cannot condemn the righteous, nor can we justify the wicked, right? So if one of these things happens, and if we are at fault, if the reason for the controversy is because we're doing something that is evil and wrong, well, then we need to be rebuked. Then I need to repent, and I don't need to do those things. But if what we're doing is good and right, and the controversy is coming from their side, and they're the one that is in the wrong, 
then we need to call them to repent. And that needs to happen not only from the leadership of the church, but from the congregation as well. That everyone needs to be unified in our voice whenever we're dealing with these things. So we, we should not be surprised that conflict will arise within the church. This is the nature of it. It even says so in 1 Corinthians 11, that divisions are necessary. These things have to happen. Factions must happen. It is through many tribulations that we must enter into the kingdom of God. And one of the tribulations that we must enter in through are false teachers and false brethren. We have to overcome them. And this has been the case from the very beginning, and it always will be the case. So this is why we wanted to do this conference, was as a help and a benefit uh, to the church and to the people so that whenever these things happen, uh, whether in the present or in the future, we would all know how to respond to these things and that we would respond in the correct way, right? So that, uh, again, there is unity within the church, in the church. Also, in terms of these controversies, of course, I've had mine and Isha's had his down in Texas, and then we've had some that were together. But even Amy has been the uh, source of attack for some of these people. Amy! Right now, everyone knows that Ishimi are jerks, and, and that's fine if people think that. But Amy's one of the nicest people in the world. And yet, in this last year, she has been called the worst pastor's wife a person has ever seen. The worst friend someone has ever seen. People who used to come to this church have said those things about my wife. Right? So it's not just me, but it spills over into our family. It spills over into others as well. So those types of things have been said, and they will continue to be said because people want to justify their sin. And whenever the message, the message of the Bible, comes into contradiction or opposition to a person's sin, they have to either repent or they have to find a way to undermine the message. And the common way to undermine the message is to throw as much mud on the messenger as possible. That way you can discredit the message and then you can go on sinning and doing whatever you want. And we have to be able to see those things so that we ourselves don't do it and that we don't uh, participate and side with those who do these types of things. So also yesterday we did talk a lot about, or in the conference, one particular controversy was brought up uh, recently, and that was with uh, Pastor Jared that was up in Tulsa. As you know, we did a, a ministry and a work with him for several years, and everything was good and fine up until this past year. Uh, and, uh, and then this last year in uh, March, March of this past year, <clears throat> he, uh, he came to us and made some accusations uh, against uh, Ish and me and basically wanted to separate and not have anything to do with us uh, anymore. And, uh, you know, it wasn't a pleasant uh, experience. It was like, uh, imagine walking down the road and someone coming up and hitting you on the head with a two-by-four, uh, unexpectedly. That's kind of what it was like. Uh, and, and it came out of, out of nowhere. So many of the things that we talked about in the conference were crystallized and they were manifested in this controversy that took place with Jared uh, that began in March and really has continued up until this present day. He continues to send us messages and uh, different uh, correspondence, uh, things, things like that. He's, you know, has mentioned that 
Ish and me are both unbelievers, that we're both false teachers, that neither one of us are qualified to be pastors, all sorts of wonderful things uh, like that, even up as recently as a couple of weeks ago. You remember when we were preaching a couple of weeks ago on the passage in Psalm 37, <clears throat> where it says, uh, the, the law of God is in his heart. Y'all remember that passage? And uh, actually, I had multiple older members from our church come up to me afterwards and thank me for the sermon and the teaching and how much they appreciated it. But Jared listened to that sermon as well. He told me that I was unqualified to be a pastor after that. So anyway, so these are the types of things that are going on behind the scenes, and it makes life exciting, uh, and we always have uh, lots of fun. So anyway, these are the things that have been going on in terms of, of, that, of that controversy, and we've not had anything uh, to do there with him any longer, and I don't see it improving it just has gotten worse and worse uh, as time has gone by. And so uh, there's no continued ministry together with him. And uh, anyway, that's, that's just the way that is. If you want more details concerning that, I'm happy to give you uh, that. Again, it, it began really in March and has continued on. And anyway, so, so that's that with Jared. Okay, now a couple of passages that I wanted to look at this morning or this afternoon in relation to this that we didn't get to the other day. The first would be Exodus 32. Exodus 32. Exodus 32, and we're going to pick up in verse 25. Exodus 32:25 says, Now when Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control by a derision among their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered together to him. He said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Every man of you put his sword on his thigh and go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp, and kill every man his brother, every man his friend, and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Then Moses said, Dedicate yourselves today to the Lord, for every man has been against his son and against his brother, in order that he may bestow a blessing upon you today. Here, this is after the golden calf incident. When this event took place, it was a very scandalous event. Right, a scandalous event amongst the people of Israel. That's what Moses even says to the derision of their enemies. Right, this idolatry, what is taking place, the enemies of God are going to mock God and mock them because of the way that they are behaving. Right, they claim to be the people of God, a holy people, a righteous people, but they're not behaving in this way. Well, when this conflict arose, and it is a conflict, isn't it? Isn't this a controversy, a scandal, a schism? a faction that has arisen up among the people. Well, what does Moses expect? Does he expect people to play both sides and say, you can be friends with this side, you can be friends with that side, you can be in the middle and it doesn't matter? Is that what he does? No. He says, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. He expects the people to be able to discern and understand who is on the Lord's side and who is against the Lord, and he expects them whoever is with the Lord, to come with me. Come on my side, be on my side, and understand what is going on. 
And then the Levites, the sons of Levi, come to him, and he expects them to go and to wage war and to put to death even their brother, even their friend, even their neighbor, those that they're close with, those that they have a previous relationship with, their love for God has to exceed their love for their brother, their love for their neighbor, their love for their friend. Isn't this what Jesus taught us? If we don't love Christ more than our family, more than our friends, more than our own life, we can't be his disciple. That we have to hate our father and mother in order to be his disciple. Well, it's the same teaching in the Old Testament. That's what they expected as well. So when this conflict arose, Moses expected the people to discern who was right and who was wrong, and also to separate from those who were wrong. In this case, they put them to death. And was this seen as evil, or was it good for them to do so? Well, notice in verse 29, dedicate yourselves today to the Lord, for every man has been against his son and against his brother, in order that he may bestow a blessing upon you today. They're being against the son or the brother. Typically, in the common, normal, day-to-day setting, it's not good to be against our brother. It's not good to be against our son in that way. But here, when it came to an issue of truth and righteousness, and your son or brother was on the wrong side, then they were against them to the glory of God. And it resulted in a blessing, God bestowing a blessing on them. And so this is the way we have to be as well. Whenever there is a conflict or a controversy, then we have to come to the Lord's side, right? Both can't be right. Now, both can be wrong, but it's impossible when there are two warring parties for both of them to be in the right. So we have to discern who's right and who's wrong and come to the side of the Lord and defend the Lord and defend those who are on the Lord's side, and then the blessing of God will be upon us, okay? Next, number 16, another example. And again, this is happening within the context of the congregation. The congregation, the people of Israel. The parallel concept for us would be within the church, within the body, the congregation. This is when this is happening. And again, as we mentioned the other day in the conference, typically the attack comes against the leadership because we're the ones that are teaching the Bible. Though not all the time, there are others who will face persecution and those things. But typically, when there is an upheaval, whenever there is resistance, it's going to be some faction in the body, in the congregation, that rises up against the leadership, right? And when that happens, we have to be able to discern what is right. Who is right, who is wrong, and then side on the side of truth and righteousness, okay? That's what happens in Numbers chapter 16. Notice here, it's not... Korah doesn't say it's Korah versus God. It's Korah versus who? It's Korah versus Moses, right? But ultimately, who is it? Ultimately, it's Korah versus God, right? Korah versus God. Number 16, verse 1. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and on the, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took action. And they rose up before Moses, together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, chosen in the assembly, men of renown, 
Now, is this not a severe test? Because we're not talking about no-names. These aren't insignificant no-name people. These are men of renown. These are men of leadership. These are men who have a name and standing among the people. And there's 250 of them. How could 250 men all be in the wrong? This is what people will say. I've had someone say that very thing to me. How could all these good people be wrong? Well, we have 250 men of renown who are rising up with Korah and these other rascals against Moses. One against 250 plus these others. They assembled together against Moses and Aaron. So it's Moses and Aaron against them and said to them, You have gone far enough, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? Oh, look, see how they're appealing to the people? They're flattering the people, are they not? They're trying to win the ear of the people. Moses and Aaron, you think that you're the only ones that are holy. You think that you're the only ones that God has spoken to. But no, this isn't the case at all. All of the congregation, they're all holy to the Lord. God's in the midst of all of them. We all can teach. We all can be in leadership. We all have the Spirit of God within us. We're all priests before God. So why are you exalting yourself above everyone else? They're making Moses and Aaron out to be devils while they themselves are innocent, sincere uh, victims. Again, this is the way people behave over and over and over again. I've had people say this to me as well. Right? Well, everyone needs to have a voice. Everyone needs to have an opinion. Why do you think, oh, you're a sheep as well. People have said that. Yeah, you may be the pastor, but you're a sheep as well. And God has spoken to us too. So why should we listen to you? Yes, people have said that to me. When Moses heard this, he fell on his face. And he spoke to Korah and all of his company, saying, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to himself, even the one whom he will choose. He will bring near to himself. Do this. Take censers for yourselves, Korah and all your company, and put fire in them and lay incense upon them in the presence of the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the one who is holy. You have gone far enough, you sons of Levi. Then Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi, is it not enough for you that, God, that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service of the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to minister to them, and that he has brought you near, Korah, and all your brothers, sons of Levi, with you? And are you seeking for the priesthood also? Therefore, you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. But as for Aaron... Who is he that you grumble against him? There, you see this ungrateful Korah, how discontent he is, how unhappy he is. He was already a Levite, and so already he had been separated from the people, and he had a standing, a position, a honorable, renowned title in service that most of the common people did not have, but that wasn't enough for him. What else did he want? He wanted what was not his. He wanted the priesthood as well. He wanted the position of Aaron and Moses. And he didn't like it that he was subservient to them. So he wanted to have their position. Who else does this? Who did this in the past? Did not Satan do this against God? He was not content with his position of honor, that he wanted to rise up in opposition 
to God. This is what devils do, and this is how Korah is behaving. And Moses makes it clear, who is Aaron? Aaron, who is Aaron that you are grumbling against him? What has he done to you that you are coming to pick a fight against him? He's not done anything to you. Did Aaron take for himself by deceit, by fraud, by trickery, the position of priest? Who gave it to him? God. God gave it to him. And what about Moses? Moses, did he take for himself this position or did God give it to him? God did. He was an, he's an 80-year-old man. What 80-year-old man wants to have to deal with people like this? An 80-year-old man wants to sit on the front porch in his rocking chair and have the rest of his life in peace and quiet. He doesn't want to have to lead people out, uh, a congregation of people out of, of, of Egypt, wander in the wilderness for 40 years. He wants to hold his grandchildren, right? Rock on the, on the front porch and be at peace. That's what he wants. And he was minding his own business in the wilderness when God called him. God called him. So they didn't take it for themselves. God gave it to them. So he says, okay, we're going to see whose side God is on. Okay? 12, then Moses sent a summons to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab. But they said, we will not come up. See how obstinate these people are? So obstinate. We won't meet with you. We won't come to a meet. We won't talk about it. We don't want to open the Bible and discuss these things. We've had people do that as well. They refuse to meet. They won't sit down with an open Bible and discuss things rationally, calmly, clearly with the Bible. No, we won't do that. He says, is it not enough that you brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey to have us die in the wilderness, but you would also lord it over us? Indeed, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor have you given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Would you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. Now look at this. Look at these liars. Is it not enough that you brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey? Isn't that a very generous assessment of their condition in Egypt? Who was the one grumbling and complaining and crying out to God? that caused God to raise up Moses to go bring them out. They were because their situation was miserable. They were slaves in the land of Egypt. The Pharaoh was killing their sons in the land of Egypt, putting them to forced labor. This is what they were like. But that's not the way he paints it, is it? Oh no, it was a wonderful place. And you, you took us out of this land of prosperity to bring us into the wilderness to die. And then you said, you tricked us, you lied, you said you were going to give us an inheritance in the land flowing with milk and honey, but you haven't given it to us. We have no fields, we have no vineyards, but whose fault is that? Why are they not in the land of promise right now? It's their fault. It's not Moses' fault. Moses brought them out. Moses brought them to the edge. Moses sent the spies in to spy out the land, but they listened to the 10 false teaching spies who disheartened the people. And then they grumbled against Moses. Remember, they wanted to put Moses to death. They tried to put him to death then, but God wouldn't let them. That's why they're not into their inheritance and they're wandering around in the wilderness. So who, they're blaming Moses, but who really is to blame? They are. They're hypocrites. They're blaming him when they themselves are the ones who are to blame. Their own sin, they're projecting on another. This is another thing that people like to do. 
Okay, then Moses became very angry and said to the Lord, Do not regard their offering. I have not taken a single donkey from them, nor have I done any harm to any of them. Now, is this sin for Moses to be angry? No, this is not sin. This is righteous indignation. This is like Mark chapter 2, when Jesus looked around in anger at them. He had anger against them. Moses has anger, and what Moses says is true. Don't regard their offering, right? God answers that prayer. And God, you know, you know that I am blameless. You know that I am innocent. I have not taken anything from these people. I have not gained a dime from them. Not a single donkey have I unjustly taken from this people. They're acting like Moses is an exploiter of people when he has not done anything of, the, of that matter. He loves them. He cares for them. He intercedes for them. He's done good to them, and yet they have repaid his good with evil. This is the way they behave. Moses said to Korah, You and all your company be present before the Lord tomorrow, both you and they along with Aaron. Each of you take his fire pan and put incense on it, and each of you bring his censer before the Lord, 250 fire pans. Also, you and Aaron shall each bring his fire pan. So they each took his own censer and put fire on it and laid incense on it, and they stood at the doorway of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Thus Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the doorway of the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. You see how much of a rascal this Korah is? Who does he have on his side now? The whole congregation. They all turn against Moses and Aaron and are following this false teacher, Korah. And how confident is Korah? He's very confident that he's in the right and Moses and Aaron are in the wrong, which is common as well. These detractors, they know that they're right. They know that God is on their side. That's what Korah thinks, but he's not. God isn't on his side, and it's going to be manifested and proven. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourself from among this congregation, that I may consume them instantly. So there is separation. Now, this isn't evil separation. This is holy separation. Get away from these people. I'm going to kill them, but I'm going to spare you. But they fell on their faces and said, O God, God of the spirits of all flesh, when one man sins, will you be angry with the entire congregation then the lord spoke to moses saying speak to the congregation saying get back from around the dwellings of korah dathan and abiram so here moses intercedes on behalf of the people showing again what kind of person he was he does love them and though the congregation is guilty the congregation sinned by following korah and not following moses and aaron but the greater sin is with Korah and these other rascals who have risen up against them. And that's why this is like Jesus saying, don't hold this sin against them. This is the same here. They've been duped by these people, so don't hold them accountable for this sin. And don't wipe out the whole congregation because of what these people have done. Okay, so when he's asking God to spare the congregation, he doesn't mean Korah. He doesn't mean Dathan, and he doesn't mean Abiram. He means those who have been duped by them. But he doesn't mean those who are the instigators, the ringleaders. They don't need to be spared, and Moses doesn't want them to be spared. He wants God to make a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. So then Moses arose and went to Dathan and Abiram with the elders of Israel following him. 
And he spoke to the congregation saying, depart now from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing that belongs to them or you will be swept away in all of their sin. So there, separate from them. Don't touch anything or you're going to be swept away in their sins. This is the way it is in the congregation as well. When there is a, someone who rises up, a false brother, a false teacher, and they expose themselves, we have to separate from them or we're going to be swept away in their sins. Right? Isn't that what he says here? Well, the same is true today. We have to separate from them lest we be swept away in all their sins. So they got back from around the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram come out and stood in the doorway of their tents along with their wives and their sons and their little ones. Moses said, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these deeds, for this is not my doing. If these men die the death of all men, or if they suffer the fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. Meaning if they die a natural death, a natural common death from lung life or sickness or disease many years later. But if the Lord brings about an entirely new thing, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that is theirs, and they descend alive into Sheol, then you will understand that these men have spurned the Lord. And as he finished speaking all these words, the ground that was under them split open, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, and their households and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their outcry, for they said, The earth may swallow us up. Fire also came forth from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. So, was everyone right? Or was one side right and the other side wrong? Here, one side was right, the other side was wrong, and God made it clear. He'll do this again. He can do it in this life, but for the most part, we have to wait until the day of judgment. And then God will make these things clear. So he made a distinction between Moses and Aaron and Korah and those who were with him. And he expected the people to also make that distinction between the two groups, right? And to not fall in with those who were doing evil against the Lord, right? And in here... Korah's rebellion, in Korah's mind, wasn't against the Lord, but it was against Moses. That's who was the target of his derision, but ultimately, who was he against? Ultimately, he was against the Lord, though in his mind, it was just Moses, and he thought God was on his side, but that wasn't the case. And this is how it is commonly in conflict. The people, the detractors who walk away, they know 100% in their own mind that they are in the right and that we are of the devil. This is what is going on in their own mind. But if they are opposing the work of God, then they are actually against God. They are against God. Okay, 1 Kings 18. 1 Kings 18, verse 20. 1 Kings 18, verse 20 says, So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. 
So here, again, the people are limping between two opinions, hesitating between two opinions, between two groups of people, right? Who is God? Is Baal God or is the Lord God? And who is the messenger of God? Is Elijah the messenger of God or are the prophets of Baal the messenger of God? And he expects them to quit limping, hesitating between these two opinions and to choose whom you're going to serve. The Lord? Are you going to follow the Lord and his messenger? Or are you going to follow the Baal and his messengers? So he expects them to make a distinction. Second Chronicles 19. Second Chronicles 19, this is after the death of Ahab. And Ahab, when he died, Ahab and Jehoshaphat, Ahab was the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. Jehoshaphat was the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. And they had joined together in an alliance to fight a common enemy. But notice here what Jehu the prophet says to Jehoshaphat the king. And Jehoshaphat is a righteous king. So he's a believer and a righteous man. But notice here. Then Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned in safety to his house in Jerusalem. Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord, and so bring wrath on yourself from the Lord? But there is some good in you, for you have removed the Asherah from the land, and you have set your heart to seek God. So Jehoshaphat lived in Jerusalem and went out again among the people from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim and brought them back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. So here, Jehoshaphat is commended for, being, for having some good in him. Right? He was a good king. He was a righteous man. He did remove idolatry from the land. He did set his heart to seek God. He brought the people back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. But in this incident with Ahab, he did wrong. He sinned. And what was his sin? How can you form an alliance with a wicked man? Right. Right? How can you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Right. Ahab hates the Lord, but you are joining yourself with a man who hates God. How can you form this kind of alliance, this brotherhood with an unbeliever? This is like being unequally yoked. How can you be unequally yoked with this man? You know what kind of a man he is. Jehoshaphat wasn't ignorant of Ahab and his sin. He knew what kind of a man that he was. He knew that he was a godless man. And yet he went and joined and formed an alliance with him. So we shouldn't do that. We should not help the wicked and we should not love those who hate the Lord. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. So if someone manifests that they are of the world, even if we were friends with them, even if they are our family, even if they were in our congregation, but they turn away from us, as it says in 1 John, and they go out from among us because they're not of us, then can we continue loving them? Can we continue? And again, we're not talking about if there's an emergency, if their house is on fire, if we go and help them in that way. But we're talking about the kind of relationship we have with those who are our friends, those that are our brothers, right? Where we do those types of things. He says, no, you can't do that. You cannot love those who hate the Lord. You cannot have friendship 
right, with those who are wicked and who are against God. In this way, and act like nothing happened, right? Act like there's no problem, right? That cannot be the case. Okay, another passage, Luke 12. Luke 12, verse 54. Luke 12, 54. And he was also saying to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, A shower is coming, and so it turns out. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say, It will be a hot day, and it turns out that way. You hypocrites, you know how to analyze the appearance of earth and sky, But why do you not analyze this present time? And why do you not even, on your own initiative, judge what is right? For while you are going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate, on your way there, make every effort to settle with him, so that he may not drag you before the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I say to you, you will not get out of there until you have paid the very last cent. Here, the people know how to make some judgments, some predictions. Right? They're able to look at a cloud rising in the west, and they know immediately that a shower is coming. They see the cloud in the west, and they say, it's going to rain today. And what happens? It rains, right? It rains that day. Their forecasters were better than ours, because ours are wrong most of the time, okay? Also, they wake up, and they feel a south wind blowing, a south wind blowing up off of the desert, and they know it's going to be a hot day. A scorching heat is going to happen today, And then they're able to make preparations throughout the remainder of the day. They know it's going to be hot today, a scorching heat. I better take extra water with me when I go out to the field. I better take something to cover my head so that I don't perish and faint there in the field. Or it's going to rain today, so I better make sure that I don't go out and get stuck doing this or that. They're able to look at the signs in the clouds, in the sky, in the weather, the wind blowing, and make certain predictions and alter their life and what they're doing accordingly to these things. But he says, but you can't do that spiritually. How are you not able to judge the present time? How are you not able to see who I am and make preparations so that when you go to the day of judgment, you're not going to be thrown into hell? Why can you not of your own initiative judge what is right? That's what Jesus is saying to them in regards to spiritual, eternal matters. They can do it in regards to temporal, physical things, but they can't do it spiritually and eternally. Well, that has application for us as well. When there are conflicts, when these things happen, we have to judge for ourselves what is right. We have to determine who is right and who is wrong. How can we not do this? We have to be able to do this if we have discernment, if we understand what the scriptures say. We have to be able to do these things. And if I'm in the wrong, then I need to be rebuked. I need to be called to repent for being in the wrong. But if the person is in the wrong, or if it's between a member and another member, we have to get all the facts, all the information, put it on the table, look at it, and determine who's right and who's wrong, and then judge for ourselves what is right, and then act accordingly. Not act like nothing happened. Not sweep it under the rug. Not say everyone's good, everyone's right, we're all going to heaven. 
We can't do that. We have to be able to discern what is good and right. Didn't Jesus expect his own disciples to do that? Between him and the Pharisees? Who's, who's right and who's wrong? Am I right or are they right? If they're right, go to them. But if I'm right, stay with me. That's what he said to them at the end of John chapter 6. Are you going to go away as well? He tells them, are you going to go follow the crowds? Are you going to go to these other teachers that you've had all this time? And they say, where else are we going to go? For you have the words of eternal life. And we have come to know that you, that you are the son of the living God. They knew and understood. They were able to judge rightly and then align with the right one and turn away from and reject the other ones, right? The other ones. Okay, John 7. John chapter 7. John 7, 24. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. We have to judge with righteous judgment. Not according to appearance, but with righteous judgment. We have to be able to listen to what people are saying, look at what they're saying, look at the facts, and come with righteous judgment. Right? Because everyone says they're right. Everyone says that they're right, that we should listen to them, and that people who disagree with them are in the wrong. That's what everyone says. So we have to be able to have righteous judgment and discern who's right and who's wrong, okay? Whenever there are these conflicts that arise within the church. And that is a responsibility, not only for the leadership, but for all the people as well, for all the people. And if we're not doing it correctly, then we are sinning against God. This is how serious of an issue it is. It is an issue of truth and righteousness. And we have to judge with righteous judgment according to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Which brings us to Proverbs 17, 15. How big of an issue is it? Proverbs 17, 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. If we justify a wicked man, if someone is sinning and we say, oh, we understand, that's okay. Oh, I can see it from your perspective. Then that's an abomination to God. If we condemn the righteous... Oh, he's not, this isn't good. He shouldn't be doing that. He shouldn't say that. He shouldn't be doing those things. But he is indeed right. Then it is an abomination to God. An abomination, right? Abomination to God isn't good. We all understand that, right? We don't want to be an abomination to God. Well, whenever there is a conflict that arises within the church, someone's right and someone's wrong, right? If two parties are at odds with one another, they both can't be right. It's impossible. Now, again, both of them can be wrong, but both of them can't be right. We have to be able to judge with righteous judgment. And then, if we don't judge with righteous judgment, and we are justifying the wicked, telling the person who is in sin that it's not a sin, then that is an abomination to God. Or if we are condemning the righteous, telling the righteous person that you're committing a sin, then that is an abomination to God. And those that are an abomination to God don't go to heaven. We don't want to be 
an abomination to God. So, again, to apply it specifically to what's been going on with Jared, he says he's right, we say that we're right. Both of us cannot be right. One is right and the other one is wrong. And we have to be able to judge who is right. You know, in terms of other conflicts that we've had in the past, when people uh, cause an uprising and, or they leave uh, in these abrupt ways, such recently we had the Wilsons do this, well, either they sinned or they didn't. If I'm saying they sinned and they didn't sin, then I'm condemning someone who's righteous and I'm an abomination to God. But if what they did was a sin and we're justifying them and saying it's no big deal, then that is an abomination to God. It can't be both. It can't be that it's good and fine. So we cannot condemn the righteous and we cannot justify the wicked. Right? We have to look at what's going on and judge it in the proper way. Because when the conflict happens, both parties cannot be in the right. So we have to look at it, make righteous judgment, and that's not just for the, con- for the leadership, that's also for the congregation. Isn't that what we read in those passages in Exodus, in Numbers? Moses expected, God expected the people to be able to discern what was right. Jesus expected the people to be able to discern what was right and to fall in on the right side. And it is the duty of the whole congregation to discern what is right and to side with the party that is correct. Because in siding with the correct party, who are we siding with? With God. If God is on our side, then to oppose the person is to oppose God. To help and support the person is to help and support God. And isn't our love for God most clearly seen in our love for one another? Right? This is the way it is, according to 1 John. How can you love God whom you don't see? Right? If you don't love your brother who you do see. It's impossible. So the way that we manifest our love for God is within the congregation. Right? And one of the ways of the people to the leadership and the leadership to the people is that we have to side with those who are right. And we have to defend each other. Aren't we called to defend God? to defend the honorable name of God against those who blaspheme him, against those who oppose him? Well, if someone is opposing a servant of God, if someone is opposing Moses, then don't the people, shouldn't they rise up and defend Moses and say to Korah, that's the shame of number 16. Where are the people at? Why aren't they rising up and telling Korah to shut his mouth? Korah, you're wrong. You're not doing what's right. Where are they at defending him? Why is he having to stand by himself with Aaron against these people and no one is there to defend Moses against them? What about Jesus? Where were all of his people at when he was being falsely accused? Well, they all ran away. What about Paul? Whenever he was put up, no one came to his defense at his first charge. He says, may the Lord not hold it against them. He doesn't want God to hold them eternally against them, but he wants them to do what's right the next time. So whether that be you, whether it be me, whether it be someone else, if there is something that happens, we have to be able to look at it and side with the right party and defend them. And then the sinning party, we have to call them to repent. We have to tell them that what you're doing is wrong and you have to repent, but we can't sweep it under the rug and act like nothing happened and just continue on as if we're best friends and as if there's been no rift or no conflict. This is what typically happens in churches. This is what has happened for many, many years. And whenever that happens, what ultimately happens again and again and again and again and again? 
a little leaven leavens a whole lump. It just spreads like gangrene and it festers within the church and you have more and more controversies and more and more problems over and over again. And then those who are sinning will take the silence of the people as justification for their sin. And they'll use it and say, well, no one else has a problem with me. No one else is saying these things. You're the only one that's saying this. And they'll use it to justify themselves that what they're doing is right and they have nothing to fear. So this is the way that we have to be, right? Whether it be in our family, whether it be in the church, whatever the situation, right? If someone is going about town, gossiping, slandering your wife, are you going to go have lunch with that person and act like there's no problem? Like your best friends? No, of course you're not going to do that. And if I find out that they're doing that to your wife, are you going to be happy if I go have lunch with them and act like nothing's going on? No, you don't want that to happen because we're friends. And if they're against you and your, if they're against your wife, they're against you. And if they're against you and your wife, then they're also against me. If you're not for me, you're against me, Jesus says. If you're with him, then you're with those who are with him as well. And this is the way that we have to be with one another. So when these things happen, we just have to deal with it. Don't be surprised when it happens. It has happened in the past. It's going to happen again. I can promise you, promise you that, right? And then when it does, we just have to get all the information out, look at it, and examine what is right. And this is why we try to be, and I need to, to do better at that. That's something that I need to grow in, and I have grown in over the past, is just to be open and honest about it. Just deal with it and lay all the facts out, right? Sometimes people don't like that. They think that it's slander, it's gossip. Why are we talking about these things openly? But we have to talk about it. Otherwise, people don't know what's going on. And everyone's wondering, well, what's going on, right? Where did this person go? They were here one day, they're going the next, right? What's taking place here? So that's why we have to talk about these things. And it's much easier just to do it at one time with everyone than to have to go to each single person and sell the same story over and over and over again. And then we can talk about it and investigate it and do those kinds of things. So that's why we wanted to do the conference so that it would help us in thinking about all the things in the past. And again, when these things happen, um, you know, Ish and me and Amy, we all, you know, we, of course we talk. This is what's going on. This is what's happening. And just over the years, as these events have happened, you, there were just patterns that we saw over and over and over again. It's like, it's like the same thing repeated over and over and over again. And I was like, man, there's a lot of common, commonality in all of these controversies. And then we started reading passages and thinking about it in terms of the Bible. And then you see the same thing happening in the Bible, which is good for us because it confirms to us that what we're experiencing is not something new. It's not uncommon. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. So we're not enduring and facing anything that no one in the past has endured and faced before. This is what is common to man. This is the Christian life. And if you live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will have persecution, right? Typically, I will probably have more because I am the public teacher. But if you are living a godly life, and you're talking to your family, and you're talking to your friends, and you're talking to your co-workers about the things of God, inevitably, you're going to have your detractors as well. You'll have your critics, your naysayers, 
you'll have those that will malign you and say horrible things about you. Even Amy has, even Amy has had her own detractors and people, and she's much nicer than I am, right? She's prettier, she's nicer, she's more hospitable than, than I am, or, and certainly much more than Ish, uh, but even she has had people who will turn against her and have said uh, nasty, horrible things to her. And Miss Hannah, the same thing, and others of you as well have experienced these types of things. So when they happen, don't be surprised. Deal with it, press on, stick together, and let's endure until we enter into the kingdom of God, right? Until we enter the kingdom of God and know that this is the Christian life. This is the common experience of the righteous throughout all generations. So let's be faithful, persevere. Don't let it get us down, right? We have to lift up our heads and press on until we enter into the kingdom of God and, and talk about it. You also have to laugh about it, right? Because it, it helps you deal with it. It helps you deal with it. And that's why we do that as well. So, all right, well, let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you, Lord, for um, your goodness to us, Lord, that you have seen fit to, Lord, to bring us into the household of faith, Lord, into the congregation, into the assembly of the righteous. Lord, we thank you for that, and Lord, we wouldn't trade that for anything. Lord, even though we know that it's not always going to be easy and pleasant and that there will be conflict, Lord, help us to see that it is impossible for us to love you, to be faithful, to live a godly and righteous life without being attached and associated with the people of God. We cannot be a Christian on our own. We cannot be a Christian without being a part of a church, an assembly. So Lord, when these things happen, may we not hold it against you, and may we not hold it against the church and come to the wrong conclusion that because there's conflict, then we should just have nothing to do with the church. Because to reject your people is to reject you. But to love your people is to love you. So, Lord, may we never have that attitude, but, Lord, seek to know and to understand truth and righteousness. Lord, that we wouldn't uh, condemn the righteous, nor justify the wicked. But with righteous judgment, Lord, may we have the ability to discern between truth and error, Lord, between wickedness and righteousness, between a false brother and a true brother. And Lord, may we always side with the righteous and, Lord, associate with them. Lord, may we delight in them and, Lord, separate from those who cause divisions and create, create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that we have been taught. So, Lord, help us to know and to discern these things. And, Lord, to be clear and open and honest with one another, Lord, about the Christian life and about what is taking place. And, Lord, we pray that you would bind us together with love, Lord, with harmony and unity, Lord, so that we might be of one mind and one spirit. Lord, especially, we pray, Lord, in terms of the people with the leadership, Lord, that there would be unity, and Lord, that we would have the same mind and spirit among us. Lord, whether that be here or whether that be in, in Texas, Lord, we pray that this would be the case. Lord, that we would be bound together in this way. Lord, so that we are all of the same mind. Lord, and that our mind would be your mind. 
the Lord on all things. Lord, we pray that you would be with us. Lord, give us a, a blessing for the rest of this Lord's Day. Lord, may we continue to worship you. And Lord, be with us and bring us back together again on Wednesday. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.